Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with Kip Anderson and Cameron Waters about their new documentary, Christspiracy. Kip is, of course, one of the filmmakers behind Cowspiracy and What the Health and Seaspiracy. Not too shabby. This movie is not released yet, and they're still raising money for distribution, but you've seen it, Marianne, haven't you? As any listener knows, I'm so into... I'm not religious, but I'm so into talking about religion. And I mean, this movie is mind-blowing. Really mind-blowing. Especially the... I mean, it does cover all of the big religions. Well, I think all of them. But, uh, you know, the major religions. And it does focus more on Christianity than the others, I think, as the title would would say. But, but it blew my mind. And I think it will blow a lot of people's minds. And it just really opens up a lot of discussion about, you know, the big question about religion. How do we have all of these religions that are all focused on, on ethics and compassion and, and doing the right thing? And they just totally take a pass on the animal issue and they go pretty deep into this question. So interesting. I love seeing the movie. I'm sorry I've seen it and you can't see it yet. I do I do feel bad about that, but, but it'll be out soon. And uh, I can't wait. That's so cool. Can't wait to get to it either. But I have to tell you about something that happened to me the other day. I was, I've been so eager to tell you. And now that the mic is on, I can. Are you ready? We don't speak other than on mic. <laughs> we have no relationship whatsoever. So... <laughs> Yeah, that's why we're going to start to broadcast like when we're grocery shopping or... (laughs) Anyway, so I went to the hardware store and it was like this local kind of mom and pop one. I just needed to pick up some painter's tape. You're sounding extremely butch, I have to say. Well, okay, I'm about to ruin that for you because I was not (laughs) getting it to paint. I was getting it to do a craft project involving spray painting Goodwill purchased sweatshirts with chicken stencils. Yeah, you're sounding extremely fam. Yes. Okay, but down with the binary. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) so I was at the local hardware store and it's so hard for me to not say, not for milk, because there's a slogan, there's a saying that's like, don't go to the hardware store for milk. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like a 12-step saying, but obviously they mean soy milk or plant-based milk. But what they're what the point of the saying is is like stop going to the wrong people for advice they'll yeah, never give I you or whatever. Anyway, it, yeah. that has nothing to do with my story. Let's try again. I went to the hardware store and when the total came to $7.20, expensive painter's tape, I might add. And they asked if I wanted to donate the 80, the additional 80 cents. And they, they, they said it was some, you know, project that helps kids who have cancer. And I, I thought, yeah, you know, this is because like, is this like the new thing? Because my co-op were my food co-op does the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I know they do. I go to that co-op too. But so I paused for a moment because I was like, obviously I don't, want to support something that would not be in alignment with my vegan ethics. And so the guy saw me pause and then I I said, "Uh, yeah. And he goes, noting the pause, he goes, you don't have to. We just have to say that. And I was like, no, no, no. And now let me just say the next thing that came out of my mouth, I I just really don't know why I said it instead of just thought it. But I said, well, I just, you know, I'm vegan and I just need to make sure that it's not, you know, something that is is inherently 
exploitative of animals. And, uh, and he goes, well, it's kids with cancer, so it shouldn't matter if they're vegan. And I was like, oh, uh, no, I mean, like, you know, like 4-H, like I wouldn't give to 4-H. And, and he said, I never even get involved in this stuff anymore. It's too political. It has nothing to do with health anymore. And I was like, right. Yeah. I'm not vegan because of health. I'm vegan because I'm uncomfortable with the way animals are treated. And he goes, yeah, it's disgusting, isn't it? Wow. He, and he was I, really all over the place. I, and I <laughs> was like, every issue in this two second conversation. I know. And I was like, <laughs> yes, it is. And then he I paid. And then I go, well, happy Thanksgiving, just because I wanted him to associate like the vegan as being, you know, nice or whatever. But or or maybe he'll like think of me when it's when he's eating his carcass, assuming maybe I made him vegan in that moment. Who knows? But in any case, it was so weird. Like the whole thing was so So his assumption was that you you wanted to to know if these children were vegan, if these children with cancer were vegan before you decided whether you would want to provide any supportive services for them? That was like kind of monster. Obviously, I'm a huge monster. But that wasn't, I mean, I think that was where his brain went at some point during the conversation. But like Uh the other thing is he was being like really rude and I had actually just donated the money. Like the whole thing was so Well, you made him uncomfortable. That's our job. That is our job in life to make people unhappy and uncomfortable. So good job. So the funny thing is I told you that you should go to that hardware store and get something else. And then he'll ask you the same th- thing. And then you'll say, are those children vegan or something like that? <laughs> that would be funny. Anyway, I just really wanted to share that with you. So tell me about this uh, ethicist, this ethicist article you pulled out from the New York Times. But before you do, let me just say, I just need a moment to say the ethicists. Imagine calling yourself an ethicist. I just don't understand who would be like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be, you know, a math teacher. I want to be an ethicist. It's just so weird. Like, what gives you the right to decide on the ethics? I don't know. Like, like Peter Singer is probably called, I mean, it's a philosopher who who focuses on ethics. I agree. I mean, I think it's weird to call yourself a philosopher. Although this guy at the hardware store would probably think that I thought of myself as an ethicist yeah, but you were. because I had ethical I think most people beliefs. should think of themselves as an ethicist. They just shouldn't maybe go around using the word like they know what, yeah. they know everything. But I, I would hope that most people would think that they're try, at least trying to be ethical. I don't know why I'm saying that because obviously most people don't. I agree. I agree. This is from this column from the New York Times. And, you know, they it's a question and answer column. And, and it's written by Kwame Anthony Apia. And and he got this letter, which doesn't have anything to do with animals. <laughs> so just be prepared that we're going down a little journey here. It was about this guy who's engaged to a woman and he wants to get her, he wants to get engaged. He wants to get her a ring. He knows that she wants a, a real diamond and he wants to get a lab-grown diamond because it's better for the environment and a better value. Uh, and and so he wants to lie to her and he asks basically whether uh, that's okay. And, you know, it's like, this is not really a tough question. No, of course it's not okay. That's how the ethicist responds. Of course, it's not okay to lie to her. You know, you're getting married. Like, this isn't the best way to start out 
the relationship, but okay. I'm getting to the point here, I promise. So first of all, the ethicist points out, I know nothing about whether this is true, but that lab-grown diamonds aren't that great either. And natural diamonds, there are places that regulate working conditions, which is his main problem with getting a natural diamond is that it's a very exploitive industry. I have no idea whether it's true. I, you know, don't buy diamonds. It's stupid anyway. But here's the line. I'm getting to it. Even if your assumptions were correct, though, the worldly consequences of your individual purchase by itself would not be significant. All right, hold, hold, hold the phone here. Like, like that is the crux. I mean, it's the crux of what's wrong with the way people think about veganism. It's the crux of the way people think about loads and loads of consumer purchases that we have become people, we have become creatures who think that we don't have to worry about what we do as long as everybody else does it. And since we live in a consumer society, virtually everything we do is done by everybody else, or at least loads and loads of other people, like it just destroys ethics completely in a huge, huge variety of situations. I I was shocked. I have to say I was shocked. Right. I I mean, that's, it's completely bananas. I haven't written to him yet. I know I should. So should everybody else. I want to. I do. Because this guy is bananas. It seems like such a crazy way of beginning a relationship. And the fact that like, he's not being honest with his wife about it is one thing. Yeah. But that like, was, that was an easy call. Right. The others, but the other side of it is these individual decisions, they do influence everything from market trends to societal norms. And obviously, personal ethics stances are very important. They have a ripple effect. Yeah. They're important. I mean, for all the reasons we talk about all the time. Yeah. Agreed. Bananas to me, totally bananas. So thanks for pointing that out. I truly think that that is the kind of thinking that enters into people, into really a lot of people, especially nowadays where veganism is more obvious, it's more out there, and people are more aware that there are problems. This is the, this is the point where people say, I don't have to care. And, you know, they have a point. I mean, like one person's actions really don't make a huge difference arguably don't make any difference if the industry is big enough, as all animal industries are. But like, if we can't find our way to make individual choices and and think that we are having some kind of impact on the world, especially if we make those individual choices and then are not quiet about them, we don't have to shove them in people's faces all the time, but it is a good idea to shove them in people's faces as long as, as, as much as possible. How else are we going to change anything? We just go along and we live our lives participating in horror uh, because everybody else does. And this is what the ethicist says. Oh, my God. Right. Yeah. uh, uh, Totally bananas. Oh, my goodness. Okay. well, besides that, uh, have you been eating your beans lately? I love this website. Yeah. That was, by the way, the worst transition I've made in the history of our head house. Oh, there have been worse. There have been many, many really bad ones. Thank you. Thank you. Let's talk about beans, baby. Let's talk about you and me. I just put this in our list of things to discuss because it pleased me. And me. It's a website. And it's part of this huge, huge NGO uh, sustainable development goals, too, that's, you know, really working on... um, changing our food system to to make it food secure, improve people's nutrition, promote sustainable agriculture by 2030. It's you know, it's a big deal. One of their projects and they have a whole website for it is beans is how. 
And their point, it's a campaign to double global bean consumption by 2028. And I just kind of loved it because, you know, I'm all for cultured meat and I'm all for plant-based meats and I'm all for anything that gets people to eat vegan. But we shouldn't be forgetting that the healthiest food on the planet for humans and one of the most delicious, which people just seem to like forget, like beans are so good. And, you know, even I forget. Sometimes I don't have beans for a long time and then I have them. I'm like, oh my God, these are so satisfying. They're so good. They're so delicious. Even without, even when you're just eating them plain, they're sustainable in every possible way and they're so good for people and people should should double down on them. That's for sure. The only thing that did strike me is that I looked through the entire website and I did not see one mention of flatulence, which- Are you, you know, kidding me? No. Oh, come on. I mean, that's obviously the main reason that most people don't eat beans. Do people like really get farty from beans? Because I've never... Uh, Yeah, they do. They do? I can assure you. I just, I guess I've been blessed with a good GI system. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why, but I do. And I've read that, you know, experiments have shown that most of the techniques that are out there, like like, uh, soaking and double soaking and throwing out the, the water. And oh, oh, none of them have any, they, they don't matter at all. It's just a waste of time and water. Do you have a favorite, a favorite way of having beans, by the way? Well, I like some chana masala. I'll, I'll give you that. I like dal. So I like in, anything that people who cook Indian food do with beans is pretty good with me. I also love like a great lentil soup. I mean, who doesn't love a great lentil soup? I don't know. I, I could go on. Hummus. Like, how good is hummus? Remember that hummus place on, uh, was it McDougal? Right. That was amazing. In lower Manhattan. Yeah. Yeah. That was so good. They had the best time. I think it's because they put like twice as much oil in it, which improves everything. Speaking of that, I did just eat my new tahini from the international grocery store that we had. And it was like epic. Oh, excellent. I brought some too, but I think I brought a different brand. This is when we went to our international store. I don't remember the brand. I'll have to get back to you on that. But let me tell you what I did. I took tahini. I put a little bit in a mug. I put some semi-sweet chocolate chips, just like a little sprinkling in the same mug. I put a teaspoon of maple syrup. I mixed it all together. I microwaved it for 30 seconds. And then I added like this kind of uh, Rice Krispie-ish type cereal. I And then I ate it with a spoon. Well, no wonder it was good. It was like, honestly. That sounds amazing. It was insane. Like, holy crap, that was amazing. You are aware that I can't eat chocolate anymore and you're telling me about chocolate, but it's it's fine. You don't like... It's fine. You don't like carob though. No, I I don't. Like carob is stupid. I I like carob. I I have no understanding of the whole carob thing. That's all right. Okay, let's, uh, let's talk about some exciting things coming up. Yeah, we actually have a lot of housekeeping, so let's get to that, yeah. Yeah. As we cozy up this weekend, we've got a really special reminder for you. This coming Tuesday, November 28th, is not just any Tuesday. It's Giving Tuesday. That's a day <laughs> dedicated. I haven't heard that noise in so long. <laughs> it's a day dedicated to generosity. It's kindness and compassion and all that good stuff. And money. Most of all, money. It's a day devoted to to putting your money where your mouth is. Well, that part, because people were putting their money into sales on Black Friday and Cyber Monday. But this is a better way of putting your money places. And so we hope that you can join us 
And also, by the way, if you can't, just follow us on Instagram at Our Hen House. Spread the word about the Our Hen House podcast, the Animal Law podcast. If you share our podcast, then we can amplify our collective voice for animals. And if you feel like you're in a position to do so, we would love if you could make a tax-exempt donation because we are committed to providing free resources to activists and to anybody who cares about changing the world for animals. But we do rely on financial support from those who can afford it. And here's some exciting news. Any donation you make before the end of the year will be doubled up to $25,000 thanks to some very generous supporters. Whether it is a small amount or you're joining our Flock Friends community, every single bit helps. You could donate at ourhenhouse.org slash support or new this year, text henhouse to 53555. That's henhouse to 53555. And last but not least, why not gift a flock membership? Oh, that's such a nice idea. Have we ever suggested that before? I love that. We, We have, but that's okay. If you're looking for an environmentally friendly gift for your animal advocate friends, our memberships start at just $10 a month or $100 a year, and they come with great resources and perks like exclusive content and invites to live podcast recordings with Q&A sessions. So make Giving Tuesday count. Follow, share, donate, gift. Every action you take makes a difference. Thank you so much, by the way, for being a part of our journey and for all of the love and support. We really appreciate you. We've changed our donor site and we have some important information for any flock members that make monthly donations who are you know, basically our favorite people in the world. And we've mentioned it previously, but just in case you missed it, we're in the process of changing our membership management. We have a new system. And this means that if you have a current recurring donation, it will be ending this month. And and we won't, it'll be over and we'll be so sad. And so you need to sign up on our new platform to continue your flock membership. And believe me, I'm really sorry that this is necessary. We would have done anything to avoid it, but we couldn't figure out a way. So we've sent out our first round of emails and we'll continue to be in touch about it. But we know that some people are like me and you know, and have a lot of trouble keeping track of email. So we wanted to give you this heads up. And annual donors are also welcome to head over and get started. And you will now have the option to set your annual donation to recurring as well. Please let us know if you have any questions or issues and If you're not already a Flock member, of course, we would love if you would join us or or make a one-time donation. And all of this information can be found at ourhenhouse.org slash support. So let's get to our interview today. Kip Anderson has changed the way the world looks at eating animals. After producing some of Netflix's most watched documentaries, Cowspiracy, What the Health, and Seaspiracy, working alongside the likes of Joaquin Phoenix and Leonardo DiCaprio as executive producers, Christspiracy is his biggest chapter yet. Cam Waters is a formal gospel songwriter and musician for Sony and Interscope Records turned filmmaker. After growing up in the Bible Belt with a family lineage of gospel singers and a minister, Cam was entrenched in the church from day one, from the first day he was born. It wasn't until he realized how people use Christianity to justify animal abuse that he started this journey and eventually co-created this revolutionary documentary. Kip and Cam will be joining Marianne right after this. The Culture and Animals Foundation sponsors artists, 
scholars and activists in our collective efforts to understand our fellow species more deeply and to further their rights. CIF provides annual grants, an arts prize, a lecture series, and a fellowship. Visit cultureandanimals.org for more information. That's cultureandanimals.org, the Culture and Animals Foundation. Think, create, explore, celebrate. Welcome to our hen house, Kip and Cam. I'm so excited about this interview. So are we. Thank you so much for having us on. I am lucky enough to have seen this movie. And I was saying before we started recording, I don't think of myself as religious, but I find religion so fascinating. And one of the things that has always driven me crazy is how religions just take a pass on the whole question of the ethics around animals. It's it's unbelievable. And you actually went there and you sort of got other people to go there too. So Kip, let me start with you. You've done the environment, you've done the health issues, and of course, animal care and ethics uh, and lives have been woven throughout all of your movies, all of those issues. And I got the feeling that you were done. And then you decided to approach the issue of eating animals from the viewpoint of faith. So what compelled this to happen? Well... Interestingly, I always knew there was going to be a film on animal ethics. It, it was never going to be finished until that was done. And Cowspiracy was originally environment, health, and ethics. That's why you see at the very end, we have Dr. Clapper in there. We actually had some yogis in there and a Buddhist in there before. We tried to cram everything all in one, and it was too much. So it was always the plan to do a film on animal ethics, just how exactly, never really knew. To make it entertaining. <laughs> it's a tough issue. Yeah, to talk, you know, we have Earthlings, which is like, oh, God, so dear to me. And I, I love Sean. To make something really mainstream where you're talking about killing the equivalent of, of the entire human population 10 times over every single year. How do you even have a conversation around this or exploration? And so there was some inklings of how it would be done. But yeah, not really until I met Cam at a divine encounter at a Cowspiracy screening at LA Greenfest years ago. Once we met, it was, it was really special. Just right away, we clicked and the whole thing took off from there. Do you think this is a religious movie? Is it anti-religious movie? Is it just an ethics movie? How would you characterize it? I like to say it's not a religious movie. It's a film on religion. It's on animal ethics. It's on religion. It's on spirituality. And it's how they all relate to animals historically and now. And it's, well, how have we gotten to where we're at today? You know, I think that's a big thing of the exploration of this film. So yes, we have a thread line, you know, it's called Christspiracy and it's a massive, massive reveal. But as you see in the film, it's so much more than that. Without giving too much away, there's a few big reveals. One of the big reveals is how it ties all religions and all spiritualities together. And it's definitely not a Christian film, but it's a film that covers early Christianity, the origins of it. So... I'd start off with that. Yeah, I think that characterizes it well without... I promise I won't give anything away, but honestly, there's just so much here. I, I'm not sure that's even a problem because there's so much to talk about. And the whole conversation seems to have started between you two. And I love that story that you immediately, like it just happened, kind of. You have film of that encounter. And Cam, I think you were in the audience and you asked the question, is there a spiritual way to kill an animal? And that question ends up resonating throughout the whole movie. Can you talk a little bit about why you asked that question in the first place and why you guys keep asking it? 
Yeah, well, my backstory is that I was raised in the Bible Belt as a Southern Baptist, and very much a part of my upbringing was consuming animals through backyard barbecues, church barbecues. I was a part of a Christian youth hunting club and fishing club. So it was something that was very, very common within my lifestyle growing up. But when I became a teenager, I started experimenting with this Daniel fast, which we talk about in the film. I don't want to give too much away, but it's a scripture-based fast where you actually remove animal products from your diet for a period of drawing closer to God and prayer and all of this. And Daniel was kind of one of my superheroes when I was growing up because he's this Bible character that's really strong and survives the lion's den and is really smart and all of these things. But as a kid, I had never heard that side of it, you know, the part where he removed animal products from his diet. So when I started practicing that as a teenager, it just opened up a whole new world and thought path for me around what I was consuming. And a few things, one led to the next to where I just decided after doing it the third time that I did it, I just decided to keep doing it with my mom at the time because she was feeling really great about it too. But again, it was a really slow process. You know, I had cut out just regular meat, I guess is what I called it then, except for fish, which we know they're all animals. But I ate fish because Jesus ate fish for a long time. And then after that, it was a slow, slow process. But it was still always in conflict with my faith and my community because as I went into my early 20s, I started a career in gospel music. And all of my peers and people that I spent time with, this question would come up or this conversation would come up based on what I was experimenting with. And it always seemed to be a little bit at odds with my faith in some ways based off of what people were reflecting back to me. Like, oh, I know Daniel did it, but this and that, and you don't, yeah, it, it was like I was believing something different. So by the time I met Kip, I was actually pretty deep on this question because at a certain point I started to ask myself, well, if Christianity is based on Christ, then what would Jesus do? when it comes to eating animals. And I assumed he ate fish, like I said, as well as lamb at the Passover. But then at a certain point, that ethical side comes in because when we think of Jesus or when I think of Jesus as a Christ follower, it's always framed in like how to live a more ethical, compassionate, loving life. And those words are kind of challenging to think about when you're thinking about taking the life of an animal. So what is the way to do that? So that's kind of how that question or that concern was framed over time for me. And then when Kip and I met, he obviously has been thinking about that for a long time. And it was much easier to talk to him about it than it was any of my peers at church. So one thing led to the next and we decided to make the movie together. Wow. That's an amazing story. How many people struggle so much with faith issues and don't ask that question? And then once you ask that question and you really ask the question, which is what you did, it's really hard to answer it. And at the same time, I, we were talking a little bit before we started recording. I was talking to you, Kip, and you were talking about that your relationship to faith is very, very different. And that comes through in the movie as well. But I feel like the movie, maybe because you guys made it together, it, you don't feel like it has a goal of changing people's faith or relationship to God or gods, since we cover a bunch of religions. But maybe it has the goal of changing people's attitudes regarding what they've been taught, which has a lot to do with what happened with you, Cam, and what God wants them to understand about animals. I didn't feel like it was proselytizing me to become more religious or anything. But I felt like also somebody like you, Cam, who's very religious and has a deep belief, wouldn't feel that like I was trying to talk them out of it. Was that kind of the goal? Because if it was the goal, you pulled it off. And if it wasn't the goal, maybe it was a subconscious goal. 
Yeah. Coming from my background and my peers, I guess in some ways I was always thinking about myself first and how uncomfortable it naturally was for me to ask myself some of these questions and knowing that it's a deep conversation and it's one that you want to tread lightly and not pressure anyone into a particular belief, but more so use the power of asking questions to raise one's own conscious awareness around it. And similarly, you know, I was thinking about my friends and my peers and how they would receive certain information as we were making the film. And so we definitely wanted it to be palatable for anyone who's religious, but also equally palatable and entertaining for people who aren't religious because it's still a very important conversation. Yeah, I can't even imagine starting off trying to pull that off, but you actually did manage to pull that off. Speaking of asking questions, which is a great approach to advocacy, as we all know, but you kept kind of have a trademark of asking questions. I mean, that's like what you do. You go into these people, I don't know how you get in there, and you start asking questions. And it doesn't take very long before you put them on the spot and the questions become impossible for them to answer. You've done it in all of your movies. It's totally brilliant. I'm just wondering, was it harder in this particular area, either because of the subject matter or because people could watch your old movies and see what you do? Was it harder to get interviews? Because you did get interviews, but I imagine you got turned down, too. You talk about a couple of them where you got turned down. Yeah. Sometimes we don't say, oh, Kip Anderson's going to come interview you. (laughs) We don't say that. It was a working title. People ask that question for all the films, like, how on earth do you do that? It's very important that when we frame proposing someone to do an interview, We have to say what it's going to be about. So it's like, how does eating in relationship to spirituality? So we have some generalities that we use. So it wasn't necessarily any harder. The one part was harder with this film. I didn't say harder, but it was interesting is that with all the previous films I've worked on is that we knew going into the interview, they knew. Like when I'm interviewing Sierra Cloud or interviewing Oceana, they know They know. And it's just like when you know and you're trying to ask these questions to get around it and they're doing all their little tricks. What was interesting about this one is having compassion that when we ask these questions, I don't want to give too much away in the film. They genuinely just have never been asked these questions. You know, it's not like they're covering it up or they know they don't want us to tell it. This was a very genuine like I have never been asked this question. I have no idea. What an incredible question. And so is working with being compassionate in that respect was not like I'm trying to get you in any way. That being said, it kind of maybe looks like that because just by the sheer nature of what questions we're asking, it's like, oh, got you. But I feel if you're not aligned with what your beliefs are and what you're preaching and, you know, speak for myself too, and you're asked some of these questions, they're very, very difficult. And sometimes it's hard because I see they're being challenged by these questions they've never even thought of. Yeah. So that was a little bit more difficult in this one where the other one, I'm like, Greenpeace, I'm going to get you, you know, I know, you know. So that was interesting with this one. I hear you. I mean, and these people have been generous enough to give you the interview and you feel like they're starting out the conversations feeling that they're on solid ground and these are things that they talk about and they're proud to talk about them. And then deliberately or not, you just kind of pull the rug out from under them and ask them these questions. And it's the thing that drives me so crazy. And you make the point in the film without giving anything away that the history of these religions doesn't necessarily comport with current attitudes towards animals. It's not like nobody's ever thought of these things before. Having done all of this and had all of these conversations, do you have a theory as to why people just don't go there, even in their own minds, even people who have devoted their lives to thinking about what's right and wrong? 
I feel he really summarized this and does a good job as Will Tuttle with his books and stuff, you know, the World Peace Diet. And he goes into just generations of generations and what it means to, you know, even us as vegans, like when Thanksgiving's coming up. I remember when I was first vegan and it's like not only you're not eating animals, but you're breaking tradition. It's like you're telling your mother and father, you didn't raise me right. You know, and you're telling that their fathers, mothers didn't raise you right. So this whole lineage thing of honoring that lineage, it's like a systemic thing, you know. And so when this carries on for hundreds and thousands of years, it's tough to break out of. And you literally, like we mentioned in the film, you're in the matrix and we call it the matrix. And so it's just a place you don't want to go. Once you go there, you realize, oh, yeah, I'm not really aligned with that. This is one aspect that it's easy to pray and do these other things. But for me to completely transform my diet three days a week and then I'm going against my family members and da, da, da. And what does that lead to my friends? And da, da. there's just so many ramifications about what you eat, which is really interesting. So there's just a lot of factors come into play that it's just easier not to talk about it and not to go there. Because if you do, it, it shakes up a lot. Lot of stuff. What about you, Kim? Why do you think you went there when having grown up in your faith and it was important to you? I'm sure there were many people whom you respected and cared about. Like, why do you think that you went there and they didn't? Well, funny enough, a big part of it is because my mom is relentless. And when we did the Daniel fast together towards the end of my third fast, it's like a 21 day thing. And so week three, She's an insurance sales lady, and she that same week had to go audit a chicken farm close to my hometown. And she came back home and was telling me and my stepdad, who was a barbecue restaurant owner at the time, and I worked oh, for God. the barbecue restaurant. <laughs> wow. Yeah. She started telling us about the battery cages with tears in her eyes and started throwing all the chicken in the refrigerator into the trash. And then a day later or two days later, she kind of went down the rabbit hole on the rest of the industry in terms of the meat side. And so she says, you know, I'm not doing this anymore. And at the same time, I had my own thoughts about it that I was beginning to open up to more than ever based on looking at the scripture. And honestly, going back in time, one of the funny stories is this concept for me was plugged into my mind really early because my family is so religious and zealous and taught me at such a young age. One of my earliest memories is learning the Ten Commandments in Thou Shalt Not Kill and sure. everything. And around that same time, my grandfather, who's a minister, took me to a conference at my church. I was eight years old. And this guy named Ken Ham, who we actually did an interview at his facility, the big Noah's Ark facility. Right, right. Yeah. I've listened to some podcasts about that facility, but that's a totally other topic. It seems fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, super fascinating. And what's really fascinating is that Ken Ham, the guy who built that ark and that facility, he came to my local church and he was rallying for creationism, which is the kind of somewhat science-based approach to proving that God created the world in the way the Bible says. And part of that argument is that the entire world was vegetarian, even animals at that time. And at eight years old, I remember a guy in the crowd standing up and raising his hand and having a rebuttal to Ken and saying, hey, you're saying that the whole world was vegetarian and you're also saying dinosaurs lived at the same times as humans. So are you saying dinosaurs were vegetarian? That doesn't make sense because of their teeth. And then Ken said, well, have you ever tried to crack a coconut with your teeth? Inferring that the dinosaurs were picking coconuts. And it, regardless of the belief system around that, for me as an eight-year-old, it just seared into my brain deeply, this concept of the vegetarian kind of Garden of Eden type uh, scenario. 
But again, I never followed it, but the seed was planted, I guess. So when I was a teenager and started asking these questions, I guess maybe in some ways I was a little bit more open. And luckily my family, though they're very religious, they're also very much open and they're kind of rebels in their own way and question things and want to know the truth. So that made it easier, I guess, in some ways. But to answer your point before, I totally agree with what Kip's saying. It's just such a deep cultural, traditional thing that when you start to ask some of these questions, it's like you're beginning to believe a different religion altogether. I think that's the big barrier, especially on the faith-based side, from my experience. Yeah, that's really deep. I mean, we all know that there are a million barriers, especially as you were saying, Kip, like family barriers and not offending people, not standing out, not being different. But adding the religious one, if people really think that you know, you're leaving the religion by doing this, which seems crazy to me. But everything about this topic is crazy. I think we all agree on that. All right. So this isn't just about Christianity. And then you mentioned that. And I just want to make clear, you took this worldwide tour. and It was really pretty incredible. You went through so many different places and examined so many different religions. Can you tell us a little bit about why you chose where to go and what you wanted to highlight in talking about, I guess, the five major religions? Is that right? Yeah. And even beyond that, it's really, is there a spiritual way to kill and eat animals? So it goes beyond just, is there an ethical way to do this? So we just start checking off the boxes of who we, we need to interview and, and what categories per se, or what's religion, spiritualities, we even go into yoga. And so we traveled around the world to talk to the leading experts on this topic. And obviously, in particular, with the Jesus thread line. But one thing that's interesting is that we went to Nepal and it so happened to be the God of My Animal Sacrifice Festival. Have you heard of that? I have heard of it. Yeah, I've never seen film of it until I watched the movie, but I have heard of it. And it's hard to believe. Yeah, it's every five years, and which is interesting, it's next year. And so that's why we went there is because, okay, it's a spiritual sacrifice festival held at a temple. Now it seemed serendipitous of us actually being there at that time, making the film, which was really powerful. And it was the closest we felt because you kind of feel like you're transported back in time without giving too much away. It was a trip. Cam and I were really like, wow, this could be as close as what it felt like to being at the Temple of Jerusalem in a yeah. way, yeah. Like thousands of years ago. And it was very spiritual, but at the same time, very bizarre. It actually seemed like there were some scenes there and, and other scenes, perhaps in India, where you, you seem to be in danger. I, is that right? That was the feeling I was getting, that the, there was a somewhat violent atmosphere. Oh, yeah. I mean, that car chase, you see, we were definitely on a car chase. That was a real deal. It's scary. There's these cow mafia and they've been down, you know, we, we had a section in the film. We just had to take it out. But many people get killed in this battle over protecting cows you know, one smuggling cows and one protecting cows. It's a whole other side story. But it's dangerous. We did a lot of dangerous stuff in there, and that was definitely one of them. Uh, going undercover to a leather factory, that was kind of scary. It's one of those when you're in it, you know, what if someone finds out what we're doing? So you just kind of have to keep your cool and just keep on trusting that we're all protected and just keep on going. So the movie's about all of these religions, but there is this sort of Christian through line. Is that fair to say that it's a really important part of the movie? And I'm not going to give away any spoilers, don't worry. 
but can you just kind of give us a hint of what you mean in the promo stuff that you're going to reveal the biggest cover-up in the last 2,000 years, one that will transform history forever? And I am not denying that that's true. I've seen the movie and I'm not denying that's true. And I don't want to give it away, obviously, but can you just like talk a little bit around that question? Like what topics you're examining within Christianity that lead you to think that something has been covered up? Well, yeah, the Christian through line, obviously, a couple of reasons is, number one, I think Christianity is the largest religion in the world. Funny enough, if you Google who's the most famous person, it's Jesus on every list. The level of impact and the level of influence that I think Christianity has is huge. And so really understanding the moral and ethical framework around animals through the perspective of Christianity is huge because of the level of influence that it has around the world. Even if you're not Christian, you know, like that's one of the things we say in the film is if you grow up in the Western world, even if you're not Christian, you're living in a society that has steeped in Judeo-Christian morals and ethics. So that's a big reason why we kind of launched into it. But yeah, once we got into it, that particular thread just went so deep because to start off with, without giving too much away, in Christianity especially, but really all religions, there's a deep tie to the temples and animal sacrifice and the formation of the kind of animal agriculture system. And simultaneously and in parallel, some of these early groups have, I guess, the cover-up is how they responded to that system, how they viewed that system that's maybe been lost to history. And it's something that we didn't necessarily fully have a grasp on going into it, but the deeper that we went, actually going to Israel and being boots on the ground with other people there talking with historians, archaeologists, theologians, literally going to the temple itself, this picture started to come together of this piece of the early history of Christianity or Judeo-Christianity, because they were really Jewish people that just kind of started taking a different path than the predominant kind of pharisaical priesthood type Judaism that was happening. And there's just this really core incident around Christ, around his crucifixion, what was really happening during that time that has a lot more to do with animals than I ever knew. So again, I don't want to give too much away, but Maybe that's a good taste. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that really says it. And though the Christian through line is probably the the strongest one, it really is something that you found about other religions as well, isn't it? That it's so interesting that religions so often just totally give a pass on thinking about the ethics regarding animals. I was brought up Catholic and I went to CCD, which is what it was called, like every week of my life until I was out of high school. I don't think animals were ever mentioned once. I mean, this huge ethical question just never, ever comes up. But that's not true just of Christianity, is it? It's such a hugely important issue that just seems to be avoided. Is that what you found? Yeah, and what's interesting, without giving too much away, is that the core root of Buddhism and Christianity and Hinduism, animals are very, very core part of it. One of my favorite books in our interviews that we had, Jim Mason, uh, he wrote The Unnatural Order. One of my favorite people. Yeah, he's amazing. I was talking to someone the other day and I said, yeah, you know, animal rights includes humans. Humans are animals. They're like, humans aren't animals. Literally not thinking that a human was an animal, thinking it was like a different definition. I had to actually Google it to show like humans are animals. And Unnatural Order shows that when we started to separate ourselves 
from who we are as an animal and we became a human, that's when everything started shifting. So yeah, the history of it's super interesting that we go into as well. Yeah, I would say too, what's interesting about the avoidance and just the impact that's kind of under the radar. When I first met Kip, I, on my journey, had come across Cowspiracy was the film that was out at that point, What the Health Hadn't Come Out. But that film impacted me greatly, especially as you mentioned before, Kip's ability to ask these tough questions. I felt I could relate to his experience going up against these organizations. But what I saw is this ethical question in Cowspiracy and then eventually What the Health and Seaspiracy, these different elements of environmentalism and health are being put into question with how animal agriculture impacts that. But really, it's these nonprofit organizations that aren't disclosing that information, and they're supposed to be the people that we look to for that information. And so similarly, when it comes to ethics, our moral framework is really given to us culturally through that religious tradition, ultimately. And so it is important to look to these traditions. And what's very, very interesting is, again, like Kip said earlier, 90 billion just land animals every year, lives lost. When you think about 90 billion lives being lost every year, but it's not being touched on or discussed as like a primary topic of conversation within the organizations that are talking about ethical dilemmas, it's like, what's happening? Why are we not talking about this? And I think there's never been a better time to talk about it, especially again, coming from my background with Christianity, because there's like a big conversation that started recently. I don't know if you've seen or heard about the film Sound of Freedom that recently came out went worldwide independent, similar to how we're planning to release this film, but all on human trafficking. And it's so close to the heart of people of faith because they see how corrupt this is and they want to protect the children and everything. But it's like, number one, you know, the animal agriculture industry is one of the prime places that this industry operates, human trafficking. We saw that in Seaspiracy as well, right? With the slavery and everything that was happening. But number two, it's still lives, you know, it's 90 billion lives lost every year. And so what hasn't clicked yet, and it took it a long time for it to click for me, but that ethical dilemma is corroding and corrupting our religions from within. And so, yeah, there may be resistance at first to having this conversation, but I feel if we can get through a few hurdles Many religious people, especially I know how my peers operate, when they experience something culturally that's corrupting the religion from within, that's like very alarming. And I just don't think that people see it that way yet, but it really is demoralizing our ethics to the core. And so once that conversation starts, I think it'll be a powerful way for religious people to realize, oh, we have to have this conversation God, I hope so. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, most people are religious and people have decided that doing the right thing is important. That That's what your life should be about is doing the right thing. It just seems completely obvious that anybody who has any belief in God knows that these are God's creatures and looking around that, that this would not be a good thing to do. So even in the most simplistic way, just getting people to think about it is the job. I mean, once they think about it, it's hard to believe they can come to any other conclusions. And of course, I'm just saying it in a very simplistic way. What you've said in this film is, you know, the question is still simple, but you have gone back in history and shown that these religions, it's not just that these religions have grown up ignoring animals. People have tainted the faith that was founded by these religious founders to say something different about animals. Is that how you see what you've done here? Absolutely. Yeah. That's the thing is, Similarly, again, to what Kip was saying earlier about the nonprofit organizations of environment and health, this is much different because these religions, you know, I see it as an innocent circumstance where 
it's not so much that it's the industry behind it that's producing the animals and the cultural phenomenon that's happened for thousands of years that these traditions that had such a core root of compassion for all slowly and subtly shifts out of that based off of the cultural pressure to do so because yeah. the dynamic of the economics and everything that's happening. So that's what I mean when I say this industry has actually corrupted religions. And so if anything with this film, we're not at all trying to dismiss religions or toss them to the side or call them invalid. If anything, we're really trying to explore and show the core of what they really are, which ideally, I hope, empowers everyone who is religious to be even that much more tied to their personal faith, but through this understanding and clarity of really where it all started and how it views the most vulnerable of all beings. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I just feel like this issue is the one that could change the world because people are not living in accordance with what they believe. You have made that real on the screen. I was going to add that I was with a family member recently. They're very religious. And we had this conversation and it got to the point where kind of talking about Bible verses and this and that. They have their own pig they rescued because they're ranchers and they're big time hunters. And they have their own cow that they love. And I said, how does it feel to you? How does it feel to connect to your spiritual connection with God when you have this animal that you're going to rescue and you're going to love and you're going to connect with and look in the eye and you love versus you have another animal over there that you're going to kill. What brings you closer to your God, whatever that may be? What do you feel? Because they're very heavily Christ followers. What do you feel Jesus would be on the path? What will make you feel closer to your faith? And then the conversation became without an argument. It just, it was silence. You know, you could see things fluttering in their eye and the love of their pig and their cow. And that's what's beautiful about this film, where it's like, what the health and cowspiracy and seaspiracy, you can debate all day about health. Like, oh my God, it's a carnivore diet or this, that, da, 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 and the environment. Well, it's regeneration farming. This one, we get to the point of like, how does it make you feel? Do you align with it? Because more philosophical and more personal. And it becomes a point where you can't really argue it in a logical way like the other films. So that's a yeah. beautiful thing about this film. And what's going to cause a lot of discussion. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about it all day, but, you know, <laughs> I just think it's fascinating. I mean, how you feel about yourself, how you feel personally, but also who you think God is and what is your relationship to God? I mean, how you treat his creatures must relate to that in some way, which I'm not sure people think about that much. I don't really understand how people think about it. And the do unto others, actually said that's her. I said do unto others. It doesn't say do unto other humans. It says do unto others. So the golden rule, you know, do you feel that applies to all others or is it just human others? And if it's all others, where does this stop? Does it stop um, dogs, cats, and then it stops? Or does it just go all the way? Yeah. You know, you mentioned that your relationship to the people you were interviewing was kind of different because it wasn't really that you both kind of knew that they were covering something up. It was really that in some ways, a lot of them had not thought this through before in the same way that you were asking the questions. Do any of those interviews in particular stand out as something that was a particularly poignant moment? Well, yeah, the biggest reveal that we can't really share. Um, it's the biggest reveal in the film, the climactic scene where it's like the aha moment. And that was one of those. It was just incredible. 
Again, I don't want to give too much away, but it was someone who's highly intellectual, knows the history of the Bible and all these things. And when we had this interview that took place and we finally lead to the moment where she finds something out and she's just blown away. And it's not like she's covering it up. She's just shocked. And then it's like, oh, this is right. This is validation. And this is something that's going to really spark something. So I, that was definitely the most memorable interview speak for cam too because we talk about this a lot but maybe cam you want to share a little bit more about that without getting too much away or any other ones too yeah yeah i mean essentially without giving too much away she is a translator of the hebrew bible and so we were looking into a particular instance in the scripture that would be very defining in this conversation to understand what the original scripture said and so we prompted her in the interview to look into that. And what was discovered in that moment in real time was shocking to this woman who has spent her entire life studying this and had never picked that part up, which is just a testament to what we've been saying, that there's a bit of innocent ignorance here around this because it's just not talked about enough or focused on enough. And there's many layers to that that I believe caused that. One big one is just the kind of pillar of dominion and what people understand that to mean within religious tradition, not just Christianity, but Islam and Judaism. And every kind of culture has their framework of that. And it's seen as this power dynamic in our superiority over animals and how that's used. That's kind of like think created a lot of these dynamics, but we go into that in the film as well and really question what's the real meaning behind that. But similarly, the interview with that woman is definitely the standout of all. Yeah. But a, another one that I think is worth discussing is we went on a number of interviews with Buddhists and I don't have that much of a background at all in Buddhism, but I've learned a lot over time. And it was really wild to talk to them because they have such a core blatant kind of tenet around non-harm to every creature, including animals, in a much more obvious way than I think Judeo-Christianity does. But at the same time, not giving too much away, the ones that we interviewed, and we went through many, many trying to find different angles, and we kept coming across this same kind of loophole that they would kind of espouse around consuming animals within Buddhism that was just bizarre and kind of hard to understand. And really what I understood around that was, you know, when we talk about a cover-up, it's not like they were covering up some big, large agenda with money being tied to X, Y, Z. Really, they were just covering up their own consciousness because you could see their heart. You could see it coming through what they really believe in their heart. But then there was like, you could just almost see this blockage. And that's such a testament again to Kip and what you were bringing up earlier with his stoic kind of nature with questions and everything, because I was really new to the interview process at that time. And so Kip was really charging forward in those interviews. And what we show in the film is just a fraction of what really went down in the interview, which will release an extra content. But he just had this way of bringing about this question over and over again and trying to frame in different ways and understand this loophole that these Buddhists were talking about. And that was fascinating to me because I was like, wow, I just would have never expected this to be so resistant in this way. But it is. And it's a part of that traditional cultural thing, probably. Yeah, it, it was an extraordinary moment, really. And I know exactly that was one of the interviews I was thinking of when I asked the question, the, the Buddhist one. And it is true, Kip, like you can keep going past the point where it has become so uncomfortable <laughs> that the rest of us would have trouble. But you're always kind. Your relentlessness is very gentle. It is your superpower. 
Yeah, it's kind of taking a while to develop, but yeah, it's definitely super uncomfortable for people in the room. <laughs> Just watching it is uncomfortable. Yeah. Even though I'm on your side and yeah. even though I'm annoyed with them, it's uncomfortable to see people, especially in this instance, as you say, where people are not, you know, they're not evil. They just like never thought about these central questions in some crazy way. Yeah, there's a lot of awkward silences that you don't even see in the film that everybody is just like, what is going on? But that's where the truth comes out. A lot of, like on the film side, a lot of times people ask questions and whatever the answer is, that's just what the answer. And then if you just don't acknowledge anything and just silence, then that next thing is just something that comes from a very pure state. So it's very awkward, but it's fun. <laughs> well, it's brilliant. And it's brilliant activism. And it's something we should all learn from. I think you said in the beginning, Cam, like asking questions is really the most powerful thing you can do. We don't have to tell people things. People don't listen when you tell them things. You have to get through that excruciatingly painful silence. And you do that so well. All right. I know I have to let you go. I, I could talk about this movie all day. But the really big, important thing is tell us about the financing and the distribution and the Kickstarter. Yeah, without going too deep into it, this film was a Netflix original. It was originally called Cow Spiritual. You know, it's a film on animal ethics. And as we got deeper into the story, the Jesus story got deeper for us. And we started going deeper into that. And Netflix, you know, they didn't really see where we're going with this. Or I'll just say they wanted to take it another direction, wanted to redact, take things out, certain things out. And we felt very strongly we had to keep going in the direction we were going, going even deeper and keep certain parts in. And it got to a point where both sides weren't budging. And normally Netflix has it away because at the end of the day, they have final say. They have final say in the rights of, of the film. Because they originally financed the, the filming, right? They originally financed it. Yeah, I remember signing the Seaspiracy in this film was signed the same day. And they, it was the first time it was Netflix original. The other ones I licensed. And they're like, they get final say. And I was like, oh, I don't know about that. And try to go back and forth. And like, that's how it's going to be. And it got to the point where they saw we weren't going to budge. They weren't going to budge. And so we made the very, very challenging decision of saying, okay, we don't know how. We're going to trust in the animals, trust in the higher spirits. This film has to be said in the most impactful way. And we're going to do it on our own. And, and another inspiring thing that happened of what led us to that decision is we realized when we're traveling to India and the biggest cover up in India, I'll give a little bit of a way, the biggest cover up in India is they kill all of their dairy cows. When you go in India, no one knows this. And so when we're in India, like, oh my God, this movie's going to be massive. And we're like, oh man, Netflix isn't in India, especially for, you know, if it is just a small percentage of the people seeing Seaspiracy come out massive, but no one in India, I, I live in Mexico. It's not that big in Mexico. I mean, it's huge, but for a certain demographic. So we realized not only can we possibly tell the story the way we feel it needs to be told, but maybe there's a way we can do it where everybody in the world can see it. We can somehow revolutionize a way where independent filmmakers can do something where we don't rely on a centralized streaming platform, where we can gather the community together, gather our fans, our activists together, and somehow all group up together and collaborate so we can release this film, raise enough money so we can replace the marketing machine of Netflix and release it to everyone. So that's what we're doing, releasing to everyone. No subscription status is necessary. We're doing it through a pay it forward method. So if you can't afford it, someone is going to pay it forward to you. And if you can, please pay it forward to someone else. And then our goal is also to do a theatrical premiere for this, to make this really big blockbuster film so that the entire world talks about the story. 
So that's our very ambitious goals. And then after theatrical premieres to release it online for everyone. So we're doing a Kickstarter campaign to raise as much funds as we possibly can since we did buy the film rights back to finish the film and to release this in the most professional and impactful way possible. So we're really looking for everyone's support. Everyone supported Cowspiracy and What the Health. The only way that those films could be made is by everyone's support. This one, we really, really need everyone's support and already has gone phenomenally well. And thousands of people have joined. We already reached our goal within two weeks, but we need a lot more. So... So the Kickstarter is to get the movie out there. And then the pay it forward is after the movie is out there, that's to help more people see it. So it's really two separate funding mechanisms that people can participate in. But the one that you're working on now is the Kickstarter. Is that right? The Kickstarter campaign goes until December 1st. But after that, we're figuring a way to still be able to support, still be able to do it. But yes, first is the Kickstarter campaign. And where can people find that? What should they search for on Kickstarter? Just the name of the film? Yeah, it's Christspiracy, the spirituality secret documentary on Kickstarter, but also our website, Christspiracy.com. And that's Christspiracy, not Christ piracy, as we like to say, because a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people get that confused. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, Christspiracy.com has a link there as well. We very seldom do Kickstarters for those who are listening that we've turned down your, I mean, this is a very special situation because the movie is complete. I think it's basically complete. You have yeah. tiny bit of editing to do. And it's really just a matter of the distribution methods having shifted so much right at the end. And this movie yeah. really does have to get out there. It does. Well, the way we're doing it is really a collaborative effort too. After you watch the film, we're going to have a call to action, very community-based, where our call to action is action. So it's going to be a really fun release where we're going to really join forces together and say this movie is going to turn into a movement of compassion. And the cool thing about the Kickstarter is, in a way, the Kickstarter is the beginnings of the pay it forward process. Because if you go to the page and you see the different tiers that you can support, all of them include paying it forward to X number of people as a part of that. And so essentially, the Kickstarter is just a way that we're giving early access digitally online for everyone who supports, plus some theatrical stuff that we're beginning to plan and everything. But it's just that first part of the process to kind of get the snowball rolling that we'll pick up in the new year around the release and try to make it as big as possible. And what's really exciting, I know for a lot of people, it's like, wow, I, I do wish it could be on Netflix because Netflix is so powerful. And it is. Netflix does a great job but with all these other opportunities that we get with the call to action and the grassroots nature of being able to release in that way. There's many other films that are doing it this way that have come just before us that like, again, I, I mentioned earlier, Sound of Freedom, they did it. It's the perfect time right now, more than ever for a film that has a uh, substantial impact and purpose coming into the world to do something differently and, and make a big difference because mainly the call to action as kip mentioned you know when it's on one of these streaming platforms as soon as the credits roll you're getting promoted to watch love island or some other show when you have this moment of emotions around the cause and you want to do something and so with this film even beyond you know the previous many many films in this genre the actionable things that you can do are going to be really really engaging so we're excited about that. It's really exciting. I mean, I guess the risks are higher. You know, Netflix is sort of a guarantee, but the potential is also much greater in so many ways. So it's very exciting. I just hope it really is a huge success. And I hope that lots of people in all these religions make a big deal about it and maybe they'll get mad at you and maybe there'll be a lot of controversy and it's all good. But people have got to start mm -hmm. talking about it. 
Thank you so much for talking about it today on Our Hand House. It's really been fascinating. Thank you so much for having us on. Really appreciate it. Thank you to everyone who's supporting and, and we'll see you all on the journey. Thank you. Yeah, many blessings. Can't wait for you to see it. Hey, everyone. Jasmine here to remind you that we're in the midst of our year-end fundraising season. If you enjoy our podcasts and believe in the change-making power of vegan indie media, please show your support with a tax-deductible donation to our hen house. The best part is all contributions, modest or massive, made between now and December 31st will be matched up to $25,000, but only if we make our goal. So go to ourhenhouse.org slash support to see our new membership options or to make a one-time donation. Or brand new this year, you can text us to donate. Just text HENHOUSE to 53555. That's H-E-N-H-O-U-S-E, no space, to 53555. We appreciate you so much and couldn't do this without you. Thank you so much for making the world a kinder place. Anxieties are rising. My first story, it's a mind-blowing story. My first story this week, it's from Meeting Place. It's by a new columnist there. Her name is Janet Riley. She is an expert communicator. She's in executive communications, media strategy, public speaking, et cetera, et cetera. The, t- <laughs> the title of this, of this blog is Why Do They Hate Us? They Don't Even Know Us. And... If you're wondering what she's talking about, they in this would be you or or actually all sorts of people out there. And us uh, that she's referring to would be people in the meat industry. So apparently they are feeling aggrieved by people's attitudes. Maybe they've been listening to this podcast. <laughs> so I don't hate anybody. Well, you know, I hate things that people do. Uh, we won't get into that dancing on the on the head of that pin. So she starts off by saying, I'm guessing you may have, you know, she's writing to the meat industry. I'm guessing you may have experienced a challenging in-flight conversation with a stranger. In the first place, does anybody really talk to people on planes? Uh, I don't know. I, I certainly don't. All right. This is what she thinks the conversation would have would have been like. You're in the meat industry? I'm an animal lover and I stopped eating meat after I saw a video online. Or I try not to buy my meat from big factory farms. Or you never know what parts they put in a hot dog. These oft-repeated ideas shape countless opinions. And as an industry, we object vigorously. But yelling louder doesn't make us heard better. Actually, it does. You know, let's face it. Yelling louder is the equivalent of spending more money on PR. And, and that, that does actually make you heard better. But I'll move on from that. All right, then she goes into this whole story about this guy named Daryl Davis, who is a blues singer and a pianist. And he became he, he became an anti-racism activist. And apparently he wrote this book, Clandestine Relationships. And it, it, it's an account of his experiences uh, that started with one person um, who he met while he was, he was doing a gig and who admitted that he'd never had a drink with a black man and was a KKK member. And apparently this guy actually built a friendship with this with this man and through communication got to know other people and and really felt that he he made an impact uh, on on changing people's minds 
these people were in the KKK and some of them left. So that's really pretty amazing story. And he's also featured in a chapter of renowned organizational psychologist, Adam Grant. I mean, I've never heard of Adam Grant, but you know, maybe he is renowned. Um, I don't know a lot about organizational psychology. The name of his book is Think Again. And according to this, to this column, and I know nothing about the real, you know, what I'm only accounting what she said about, about what all of these people say. According to Grant, she says, Davis intuitively used a technique called motivational interviewing. Like, that sentence is annoying. I don't, I don't know. Like, <laughs> like, no, he didn't intuitively use a technique that you have ma- named. He spoke to people, apparently, like, like you're putting a label on it and saying, you know what it's called, and he didn't. I don't know. Anyway. That's that's unimportant. According to Grant, Davis intuitively used a technique called motivational interviewing, which engages others, well, there's an idea, and encourages them to voice their beliefs and explain why they hold them. Well, you know, that's pretty <laughs> that's pretty basic. And, you know, something that I always feel that is a really good thing to do in communicating to people you disagree with and is really hard to do, and I'm not very good at it, but, you know, yeah, I'm I'm not arguing with that technique, uh, the technique called motivational interviewing, which means having, you know, asking people questions. The listener avoids rebuttals and judgments, listening respectfully with an eye toward common ground. And and the catch, according to Grant, she says, is that the listener must be genuinely open to hearing other people's points of view. And that's often not easy. Yeah, that's exactly what I was just saying. Yeah. Uh, I, I totally agree with that. It's, it's hard. But she's suggesting that people from the meat industry should should use that technique. Because apparently she thinks, <laughs> this is something that, like if you think about what she's saying here, people in the meat industry are, are standing in the shoes of this guy who actually sat down and had these very sincere conversations and made enormous headway with people who were in the KKK. The animal activists are the KKK. <laughs> We're the equivalent of the KKK members who, who, if we only need to, apparently, we only need to be given a chance to voice our concerns and what we have to say. And that will bring us around to understanding. Uh, what? <laughs> oh my God. If Davis could change KKK members' minds, what impact might the meat industry have if we adopted the same approach with those who view us in a way we don't think is accurate or fair? What she's avoiding here is the possibility that we view them in a way that actually is accurate and fair. Uh, because apparently they think what they, what they do to animals is fine and we don't. Like, there's a real difference of opinion there. This is not, you know, oh my God. And then she brings up Temple Grandin and how, <laughs> oh my God. She kind of proposes that Temple Grandin, when she immediately appeared on the scene, wasn't taken seriously by the meat industry. And what could an autistic person raised near Boston teach us about animal handling? Apparently people from Boston are particularly devoid of understanding. And then the meat industry came around and really hurt. Well, of course they hurt her. Like they're all in the business of making money off of the same uh, same poor benighted animals. Like we're not Temple Grandin, honey. Uh, sorry. And if Daryl Davis could fill a closet with robes of former KKK members who left the group, isn't humble listening, conversing and engagement worth a try? And then she suggests 
going to this website called Braver Angels, which I've never heard of and sounds like a great idea, which is a group dedicated to depolarizing the country and restoring civil dialogue. And she suggests that people in the media industry sign up for a one-on-one conversation with someone very different from you. All right. You know, like I would be happy to have that conversation. Uh, Really? And she suggests that they do respectful listening, which would be really, really nice. She believes that that polarized conversations are holding this nation and our industry back. I'm guilty of participating in many during my meat industry career. Well, I guess I'm polarized, you know, like I know what I think is evil. And um, I think what they do to animals is evil. And I'd be happy to have a conversation with anybody who who wants me wants to hear me say that and my reasons. Because, you know, I don't think I'm the equivalent of a KKK member. I think I'm an informed citizen. Oh my God, I, like I could go on and on. It just drives me crazy. It just makes me insane. All right. Also, on a kind of similar note, there's this column from Horde's Dairyman. This is by Courtney Henderson, a Virginia, a Virginia dairy farmer. I think, well, it's just a typo. It obviously means Virginia. And here are a few tips I've learned about discussing dairy farming. And he's a dairy farmer. He's not a public relations specialist. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Courtney, she, uh, using trying to use correct pronouns. I believe her pronouns would be she. Uh, and that's what I'm going to use. Over the years, she says, we have received a bad reputation, she's talking about the industry, from animal rights groups and others that do not understand the dairy world. Uh, you know, very similar. Like they have, I think they actually believe this, this, they believe themselves that we just don't understand. All right, come along with me as I give examples of ways to successfully connect and build relationships with the community around you. All right, so she's talking about tours. Apparently, they give tours of, of her dairy farm. And, uh, and, and first of all, she suggests you learn your audience and, and you know, talk, don't use words like pasteurization with elementary school. Oh, that makes total sense. Tip two, I'm just going to read the tip two out to you. Use synonyms to make it easy to understand. As farmers, we tend to use the big words that we have always heard. We also use words that no one has ever heard. For example, instead of saying pre and post dip, use the terms soap and lotion. Although soap and lotion may not be the correct terms, they do describe the overall purpose of pre and post dip. I don't know what pre and post dip are, but you know, I'll take her word for that. Instead of calf hutches, say calf nursery or calf homes. Ah, uh, okay. Now we're getting, now we're getting into it, aren't we? Yeah, hutch. Like, why wouldn't anybody understand what a hutch is? But you know, nursery or home sounds so much nicer. Um, that's me talking about her. Make the farm like a standard home. The feed bunk is the kitchen. The free stall or pack barn is the living room. The calf hutches are the nursery and so on and so forth. Yeah, well, that's just clarifying things because how, you know, how would anybody know what a feed bunk is if you didn't call it the kitchen? All right, this gets worse, I swear. It gets so much worse. <laughs> Her third tip is to be honest. Well, there's an idea. And she says, we know that dairy farmers do not usually have a good reputation as our opponents portray us as monsters and heartless and so on. I guess, you know, the word is really out. Like somehow they didn't used to worry about this stuff. All right. Then she suggested that questions be answered honestly. 
Like when asked the typical, why do you rip calves away from their moms when they are born? It's so reassuring to know that's typical. Instead of saying we don't do that, which apparently she admits that would be dishonest, explain the reasoning behind the separation. Don't be afraid to answer the question by saying cows sometimes step on their calves or cows give too much milk and it can make the baby get sick if we don't intervene. Really? Those things are not true, honey. Uh, I'm not saying that no cow has ever stepped on a calf in their life, but cows are really, really good at this. I mean, in the pig world, they make this excuse. And there's a better reason because the pigs are so enormous and, and they're confined. And, and sometimes sometimes they indeed do roll over on their piglets of whom they have gazillions. You know, the whole thing is exploitative and they're set up to do that. But, you know, that's not what cows do. They give too much milk. <laughs> So I don't know. I guess the babies are going to explode because the babies have to drink all of the milk. Like, like you want the milk, honey. That's why you're doing it. She goes on to say, folks want honest answers. Yeah, we do. We spent so long sugarcoating things that we forget that the truth means more than the charade. Maybe she believes this. I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe they tell she's, she's not that old. Like maybe this is what she was told and she just continues to believe it. All right, our final story is on a different note. And it's a Thanksgiving story. So I'm sorry, I know it's a little late, but but it will just make you really, really glad that you did not eat a turkey this, this Thanksgiving. And not just for the turkey's sake. Please keep us safe this Thanksgiving. This is from the Legally Speaking blog on Meeting Place by Sean Stevens. While bringing the family together to enjoy the day is rewarding, he says, in itself, not making other, each other sick is even more pleasurable. <laughs> Good idea. Of course, I mean, this whole column reads like uh, how, to, how to deal with biohazards in the home. Thawing the turkey should be done carefully if it's not already thawed and ideally not in the kitchen sink if it will be later used for rinsing vegetables. Yeah, good idea. Feel free to remind your mother-in-law that the FDA's 2023 food code can be a good resource when it comes to thawing, cooking, and cooling that require temperature control for safety. Yeah, he must be a joy to his mother-in-law. The food code can also provide some helpful tips for safe handling of raw animal and other risky foods. Well, there are, you know, the other foods are only risky because they've come in contact with raw animals as a, as a rule. Well, maybe that's not 100% true, but as a rule. Make sure to wash hands frequently and continuously wash and sanitize counters and utensils. It's like an operating room. If you bring a dead bird into your kitchen, treat it like an operating room. In other words, uh, he keeps Clark's disinfecting wipes open all the time. If the turkey is thawed, be sure to cook it properly and thoroughly. Nobody wants to invite Sam and Ella to their dinner party. Get it? Sam and Ella. God, it's really funny, isn't it? If you're bringing a dish to share at Thanksgiving, make sure the food is being transported safely, keeping an egg salad and refrigerated in the backseat of the car during a six-hour drive to see your relatives may not be the most brilliant idea. Also, like, can you imagine anything more disgusting than that? If you're hosting, make sure your guests understand that as well. Here too, sending up advanced copies of the food code may be advisable. <laughs> oh, what a fun day at, at Sean's house. And finally, don't give in to peer pressure when your in-laws want you to take the leftover turkey unrefrigerated with you on your six-hour trek back home. Clostridium perfringens are pretty cool on a Petri dish, but not in your stool sample. Yeah. <laughs> 
maybe maybe all, everybody who wants to eat meat should just be required to get a degree in uh, in in dealing with biohazards. So aren't you glad? Uh, you know, like if you're listening to this podcast, Thanksgiving has already passed, but you know, you're not in the hospital. <laughs> That's a lot to be thankful for still. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you enjoy the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end of year fundraising. We understand that not everyone is in a position to contribute financially. And of course, I love you all no matter what, but we have had a rather challenging year. So if you are able, we could really use your help. And this is the perfect time to make a donation because between now and December 31st, all contributions will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000 if we make it to the $25,000. And so listen to me, we have so many exciting announcements. We have revamped our membership options. We would be totally honored if you would join our Flock Friends community starting at $10 a month or $100 a year. So visit ourhenhouse.org slash support to check out our new tiered membership levels with really great names, by the way. You can be a part of our Chick Click, our Squawk Squad, our Hen House Heroes, or of course our Barnyard Benefactors. Some of the perks include weekly bonus content, access to our engaging flock exclusive spaces in our online community, and get this, monthly invitations to join Marianne and me live in the audience for a virtual recording of an Our Hen House podcast interview where you can meet the guest and ask questions for the bonus segment. And listen, also, since we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, your donation is fully tax deductible to the full extent of the law. So if you appreciate our henhouse, and if you believe in our mission to mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, and if you find community and solace in our shows and resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of independent media, please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be matched. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated and tax deductible to the full extent of the law. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org slash support. That's ourhenhouse.org slash support. Another great way to support us is to give us five stars on Spotify or leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us and leave reviews where you are able to on social media. Just find us at Our Hen House. And if you're one of the listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Walenska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher. Thank you so, so much for your support, your compassion, and for your dedication to animals. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye. Bye.